everyone welcome to the eighth episode of the catwalk boys it's been a while since myself and taylor have done this it's been uh uh over a year i think the last time we did this was in february 2020 right before the covid pandemic um so we don't get into any of the covid stuff uh this time around i'm sure you guys are already pretty well um educated on what's gone on uh over the past year it's really affected everybody um, so this time we actually talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we start off talking about this most recent round of fighting that we saw within the past couple weeks. Um, you know, Gazan factions launching rockets into Israel, Israel responding with airstrikes, that sort of thing. So we get into what exactly happened and why it happened, and then... We actually spend most of the time talking about some of the brief origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, not to jump ahead too much, but there's really um, a lot of detail in there that I think most people are completely unaware about, including myself up until about a few weeks ago. Uh, my perspective has changed um, within the past month or so completely i viewed the conflict completely different and i think uh taylor could say the same so i hope you guys enjoy this episode i had a very great time talking to taylor about this i think it was a very interesting conversation we both uh learned a lot and it was just good to sit down with them uh one more time since it's been a over a year since we've done this but thank you guys for uh listening to the podcast um again hope you enjoy it and we'll see you around Yeah, so thank you everyone for joining us again. I know it's been a while since we've done one of these. I think the last one we did was actually in February 2020. So I know like we just started talking about COVID and that was like before all the lockdowns and everything that's happened in like the past 13 months or even longer than that, I guess. Um, And we don't, obviously we don't want to get into that because everyone already knows what's going on and we don't oh, need yeah. to hash out like the past year of COVID nonsense. Um, so we wanted to talk about what's going on in Israel and Palestine, right? And we wanted to talk about, and feel free to jump in like during this, if you want to add anything, if you have any questions, uh, anything, just feel free to jump in. But we we're going to talk about Israel and Palestine. And um, we wanted to talk about most this most recent conflict, sort of what's going on, but then I sent you that podcast. And uh, for Mm -hmm. anyone that's curious what we're, what we're using, it's called the Martyr Made podcast. Uh, You could find it anywhere. It's all one word. It's very good. The host uses episodes one through six, I want to say, to talk about the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's very detailed. It's probably my favorite podcast on it is fairly graphic, I will warn you, and it's long. It's it's a long oh, yeah. podcast. It's like, I mean, like probably each episode, fifteen like hours. Each like episode total. varies from like two to even three hours. The latest one I got, and uh, I have a question because yeah, you said the first six episodes. Does he have more than six, or does it stop at the six? Because I didn't look past that. So the the Israeli Palestinian one uh, goes up until episode six, I want to say, but he has nineteen. Mm-hmm. Out right now he actually just came out with episode 19 
a few oh, days awesome. ago, and I'm I'm excited to listen to that one. It is a very good podcast for anybody that's interested in, um, I guess anybody that's interested in history. I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a history podcast, but it's like very good, super detailed. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy listening to it. That's just me. Oh yeah, very informational. I enjoyed listening to it, and like the way he uh, portrays the information too. Like it's not biased or anything. It's just hey, this is what I've looked up on, and he's he uh, references too that he's read dozens of books, he's read multiple articles, and he just tries to give the information for how it is, and he really tries to put you into the shoes of the people who lived through this. Like if, if for any of you, if you do go and listen to the first podcast, the very first few minutes, he puts you in this scenario when it, he really does a great job of getting you into the and making you try to look at the conflict through a person's eyes who is living through it, not just hearing about it, but actually trying to live through it. And it really, it puts you in the situation. It makes you take everything in even more. So very good. I highly recommend checking it out. Yeah, hundred percent. He definitely tries to uh, immerse you in um, the events that he's speaking about at the time. Right. And I think everyone kind of has their preconceived notions and opinions on the Israeli Palestinian conflict, you know, whatever you may take one of the two sides, or you may say, I don't really take any side. Yeah. And that, that is kind of how I feel now. Right. I already had an opinion um, before I listened to the podcast and listening to the six episodes has really changed my opinion on the whole overall conflict. And I, I guess that's to say that I'm not even sure I do have a set opinion. Um, and I think that was kind of the whole point of it, right? He really wants you to think about what's happening and how you would feel and how you would react if you're on either side of the mm -hmm. conflict. And yeah, I, I came out listening to it. I'm really not even sure if I have a set opinion and I'm not afraid to admit that because it is very, very confusing, very mm. complicated. And anybody that listens will recognize that right away. Can I ask, what was your opinion before you listened to the podcast? Did you, uh, like, which way did you lean? Uh, I, I would say I leaned towards Israel. Um, and I'm not even necessarily sure why I wouldn't call myself pro Israeli. Um, but I don't know. I, it, it's tough. Yeah. Cause even yeah. I've only listened to the first episode and about an, I'm an hour into the second one and it is, it's very deep. I think the whole point of the podcast, it's, it's just to show it's not black or white. It's not, Hey, this one side is in the right this one side's in the wrong no it's it's a gray area like both sides they've done some pretty terrible things uh, each side they're used to going through some pretty terrible things so it's like are they justified are they not justified that's always up for debate but you just have to listen to it and i think that's very responsible of you to say that you don't have an opinion because yeah. especially a lot of people in order to seem like oh i know what's going on i'm an adult i i clearly know this side's right it's like that's not how it always is. Usually in life, it's not like that. There's always that gray area. You can't just pick a definite side and die on that hill. So I commend you for that. Yeah, no, uh, thanks. And I, when I finished listening to the last episode, I mean that, and again, it is a very graphic 
podcast. So if that's not your thing, then maybe it's not something you want to listen to. Um, again, I would recommend it to anyone just because I think, especially if you want to have an opinion on the conflict, you need to be informed how exactly it started and what exactly is happening now. But it is very graphic. And honestly, it's sad. The last episode, that's the best way to describe it is sad. Mm. <laughs> oh, wow. I, yeah, I listened to the last episode. I was I was actually on a road trip. And um, yeah, I got done with it. And I just like sat in the car, like no noise, didn't want to listen to music, didn't want to listen to another podcast. I kind of just had to sit there and think about what I just listened to. Jeez, one of those. That, that sounds heavy. Sounds heavy yeah. But... Yeah. When you, when and if and when you get to it, uh, it is pretty heavy. It is for sure. But I kind of wanted to, and if it's okay with you, um, I wanted to start off with sort of what is going on now or what most recently happened. And then I guess we'll kind of get into how this all started, right? Because I think most people, on both sides really aren't aware of how this whole thing started, right? People think that this is a conflict that goes back hundreds, thousands of years to biblical times. And that's really not the case at all. That's what I was under the impression of. Yeah, I was one too. of those people who was like, hey, like, what's your stance on it? Like you said, I, I didn't really have a stance on it. I would always just say the answer, oh, they've always been fighting. It's like religious problems are always going to be at each other's throats. And then I listened to this and I started doing my own research. And it's like, wow, this honestly hasn't been going on nearly as long as I thought it has. Maybe like 100, 150 years. And that's about it. And yeah, it's it's eye-opening once when you do your own research. But yeah, I agree with going over the current events and then getting into... Uh, what caused these problems to stem in the first place. Okay. So basically the situation in Israel and Palestine is Israel holds most of the territory of what was considered Palestine prior to 1948, right? When Israel mm -hmm. became a state, declared its independence, right? So Palestine mm -hmm. today and Palestinians held a lot more territory back than they or back when uh, Israel became a state in 1948, right? They sort of gobbled up a lot of Palestinian territory, but Palestine is really two separate areas now, right? You have the Gaza Strip, which was on the coast of the Mediterranean, and then there's the West Bank, with, which uh, shares a border with Jordan. And it's also right, Jordan and Syria, actually, I believe. And then it's also where Jerusalem is, right? So Jerusalem is like on the border, can't even speak, on the border of the West Bank. And they're, they're ruled by two separate entities, right? So in the Gaza Strip, you have the group called Hamas, which was democratically elected. Um, I can't remember the exact date, but it was definitely within the past 20 years, right? And they I ruled- I think it was 1987. I want to say that's at least when it formed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, and so they've ruled the Gaza Strip ever since, right? And in the West Bank, they are ruled by the Palestinian Authority and the party that has been in charge of the Palestinian Authority, I believe is called Fatah. 
and the president of the Palestinian Authority is a man by the name of Mahmoud Abbas, I believe. He was elected president 16 years ago, and his term is four years. So he's 16 years into a four-year term. And so what's going on now is they were supposed to have elections in the West Bank, right? Fatah going up against Hamas, right? These two political parties. And a lot of people were betting on Hamas actually winning, right? Mahmoud Abbas is Fatah. Hamas is, I guess, the opposition party in this situation. And it looked like they were going to win. So Mahmoud Abbas, the guy that has been president for 16 years, decided to cancel the elections because it looked like he was going to lose. And he blamed it on the Jews, of course, right? Because anything goes wrong in the Palestinian territories, you blame it on the Jews. So he blamed it on the Jews, right? And then Fatah is garnering this anti-Israeli settlement, but Hamas doesn't want to be outdone by Fatah, so they start garnering anti-Israeli sentiment. Right, so it's really this competition between the two. And then there's another situation, I believe it's in the West Bank or at least close to it. It's this neighborhood called uh, Sheikh Jarrah and it's these Palestinian families that live in this neighborhood. So it used to be Palestinian territory, I mean, way back when, prior to 1948. And then at some point, Israeli forces forced Palestinians out of that neighborhood, right? And then Israelis took it over. They took over the homes and all the settlements. And then at some point in one of the wars fought between the Arab countries and the Israelis, there's been a few. I can't remember which one this happened precisely, but Jordan took over the Sheikh Jarrah area and gave the neighborhood to Palestinians, right? So Israeli troops sort of evacuated this neighborhood when the Jordanians were coming. Jordanians come in and they say, hey, Palestinians who lived here however long ago, you guys could take this neighborhood back. So here's the deeds to all these houses that were owned by Israelis, right? Mm -hmm. You could stay here now. This is your territory again. At some point, the Jordanians get pushed back again. Israel takes over the territory, but there's this uh, I mean, there's this issue, right? Palestinians are living in homes that were owned by Israelis, right? But before that, they were owned by Palestinians. So there's this change in ownership. What are you going to do about it? The Israeli Supreme Court comes up with this idea for the Palestinians. Hey, you guys could stay in these homes, but you have to pay rent to the Israelis that own the deeds, right? You could stay there, just pay rent. Okay, that's okay. the solution we're coming up with, kind of compromising on both sides. Well, there's, I believe, these four Palestinian families that haven't paid their rent to whoever owns the deeds in however long. I'm not sure how long it's been, but I believe at, at least a couple of years, right? Okay. So they are looking at being evicted. So that is really the second main cause of what is going on now between the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? These Palestinian families are looking at getting evicted and the Israelis are being blamed on this postponement of elections in the West Bank. So both sides, or not both sides, Fatah and Hamas are garnering up this anti-Israeli settlement, right? Postponed elections, these evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and Hamas starts launching rockets and missiles into Israel. And they really do this all the time. This is not uncommon at all. They'll launch, you know, three rockets here and there at 
you know, some southern Israeli city. But this time they launched well over 3,000 rockets and actually probably even more than that, at least 3,000, but probably more than that. I'm not sure on the exact number, right? But they're launching hundreds of rockets into Israel every day. And this conflict went on for a little bit over a week, I want to say. Hamas is launching rockets. Israel is striking back with uh, airstrikes, you know, dropping JDAMs on buildings, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's other Palestinian militias in Gaza, but Hamas is Hamas is the main um, militia. I believe their military wing is called the Al Qassam Brigades. I could be wrong on that, right? But Hamas is the party, and they have a military wing. But Generally, when people say Hamas, they mean both the political party and the military aspect of it. So they're launching rockets, hundreds of rockets in Israel every day. Israel's responding with airstrikes. Um, they're trying to take out Israeli outposts on the border with anti-tank missiles, right? Israel's responding with that by taking out these anti-tank anti teams, right? Sort of like a cat team like we would have in the Marines, right? That's what the Palestinians almost have, but they're more stationary. And so it's just going back and forth, right? And a lot of people accuse, I don't even know if accuse is the right word, right? Because there is documented instances of this happening, but are saying that Israel is killing civilians, targeting civilians, right? From the airstrikes or just before this even happened? I mean, something they've kind of always done, but particularly in this conflict, right, with the airstrikes. And there is, there may be some truth to that. I'll let people decide, you know, on their own. I don't want to make that determination for anyone. Um, but it, it does seem like there is some measures that Israel is taking to reduce civilian casualties. And I will say Hamas all of their military targets are hidden within civilian areas. But the Gaza Strip is very small. It's very densely populated. So, I mean, really all of it is civilian areas. It's not like here in America where we have separate military bases and all this, you know, separate land and training areas and facilities. No, I mean, it's like taking a an artillery battery and putting it on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're right in the middle of civilian areas. So, and of course, Hamas is at fault for that, right? They're using Palestinians as human shields, of course. I mean, that much can easily be determined. But Israel is destroying these military targets, which are in the middle of civilian areas. So I know there was skyscrapers in gaza you look like you had a question no oh, no, no, no no i was just I, I mean one i'm interested in i'm just changing positions and listening but uh when we got to the when we get to the casualties i was going to say due to the israeli airstrikes uh 1500 civilian deaths due to the israeli airstrikes and when you look at the hamas rocket launch you said there were hundreds um possibly thousands of rockets being launched into israel Israel is basically protected because they have what's called the Iron Dome. It's mm -hmm. just, it's shooting down incoming rockets to them. So that cuts down the casualties on their side by a lot. If I, if I remember correctly from what I looked up, I think there were only about 12 casualties. Majority of them were civilians. I think like 10 or 11 of them were civilians that um, 
Hamas, I guess, would take credit than for killing. But when you're comparing casualties, Hamas didn't kill that many Israeli airstrikes. They're killing 1,500 civilians. But like you said, that's also because of Hamas, because they do fire from within hospitals. They fire from within very populated, densely populated civilian areas. So it, it, again, that's one thing. When you just hear, oh, Israel killed 1,500 civilians, you think they're in the wrong. But then when you look at Hamas and how they strategize and use guerrilla warfare tactics of hiding out and basically using human humans as shields, it's like, oh, well, what are they supposed to do then if, you know, their rocket launchers are hidden in civilian populations? It's a tough call to make, but that's, I just want to, that was on my mind and that's probably what you recognize. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, those are all good points. And it's a really good question. What, what do you do when someone is launching rockets at you and those rocket batteries are in the middle of civilian areas? What, what do you do? You have yeah. to strike back against them somehow, because if you don't, they're going to keep launching rockets at you. But if you strike back at those rocket batteries, there's a good chance that you'll hurt some civilians, right? Because again, they're, they're being used as human shields in a way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an interesting question, and I don't, I don't necessarily have an answer to it. And even if I did, I, didn't, I don't know if I really want to say it, because I don't think that's my place. Right. But it is a reality of what's happening. Right. So I know there was one instance where Israeli jets hit a refugee camp and these refugee camps are Palestinians who were forced out of their land that is now occupied by Israel. And this I mean, these refugee camps have been there for, you know, decades, decades at this point, right? Like people were born in these refugee camps. Most, most people inside the camps now weren't, weren't even alive when these Palestinians were pushed out of their settlements by Israeli forces, right? But Israeli jets hit a certain refugee camp and killed, I want to say eight, eight civilians and at least six of those were children. Right. And I'm not sure all the dynamics of that situation. Right. But it's just a reality. Children were killed, at least six of them and eight civilians total were killed. So it's a reality of this conflict. And separately, Israel, Israel has this technique when they're going to launch airstrikes on a high rise building. It's called the door knock. Right. So it's this bomb that's specifically made not to penetrate um, through the roof of a building. So it just kind of shakes up the building a little bit. And that's kind of the signal to Palestinians that are inside those buildings. Hey, the building's shaking. This is a door knock. You guys should get out of there because we are going to take this building down with JDAMs. Right. So they did some door knocks during this conflict, too. Um, There's recordings of Israeli officials on the phone with like Palestinian security guards in these high rise buildings, like, Hey, we're going to bomb this place. You need to get everyone out now. We'll give you time to do it, but we will bomb this place. So make sure everyone's out of the building. If not, I don't know what to tell you guys. So that's another reality of the conflict, but that's sort of what's going on now. That conflict again, only lasted a little bit longer than a week. I want to say there's a ceasefire going on right now. And that's really how most of these series of conflicts between the Israelis and the Palestinians end now. 
Um, mm -hmm. Egypt and the U.S. will really mediate a ceasefire between the two parties and Egypt specifically because they were the first Arab country to declare peace with Israel, I believe, in 1972 and establish uh, diplomatic relations with them. So that's why Egypt has always really since then played a big, uh, big role in negotiating these ceasefires between the two sides. But that's sort of what's going on now. And um, I guess now I think we should get into how this whole thing started, unless you have any other uh, questions or anything you want to throw out on what's going on currently. Uh, the only thing, you, the one thing you brought to my attention from that was I wasn't even aware of the, the election that was put on hold. I, I wasn't even aware of that. Um, and of course, I'm sure that there are multiple little things that built up with, uh, the airstrikes, but the main things that I knew of was the, um, the, pa, what was it, was at forgive me for my pronunciation of this, the Sheikh Jaha neighborhood mm -hmm. with the uh, 13 families getting evicted. I remember you saying it was about four families. A couple of articles that I read where it said it was 13 Palestinian families that okay. were disputed for getting evicted. That was going on for several weeks. And then also um, this was going on during Ramadan. And then on the last Friday of Ramadan, the 7th of May, uh, thousands of uh, Arabs showed up at... Uh, how do you pronounce this? The Al-Aqsa Mosque. Oh, the and Al -Aqsa Mosque. Thank you. Yes, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I said thousands. I should rephrase that. About seventy, an estimated seventy thousand Arabs were there. And this Al-Aqsa Mosque. This is one of like the three holiest sites in all of Islam. Seventy thousand devoted Arabs going there to observe the last Friday of Ramadan. They they did their thing. They prayed. When the prayers were over, uh, keep in mind. At this time, uh, the evictions at Sheikh Jahat were going on. So once when the prayers were done, protests started going on there. And there were 70,000 people. You can imagine how big these protests were. And then that's when the um, Israeli police force got dispatched to there. And they were firing, firing rubber-coated metal bullets on them, tear gas, dung grenades, you name it, for I think five days. And they raided that compound four times in five days. And then uh, Hamas was then sent a message to uh, the Israeli government saying, hey, like, take your forces out of here. If you don't take your forces out of here by this deadline, we're going to start firing rockets into your area. Well, Israeli forces, they didn't pull, they didn't pull their forces out. So then Hamas kept true to their word, which uh, instigated them firing their first rockets at them and then started this whole barrage of uh, airstrikes and rockets at one another for um, 11 days and there was a ceasefire called like you said um, have they have both sides stayed true to the ceasefire since then mm, so from from what I've seen I haven't seen any rockets or missiles launched into Israel um, but there's still sort of intermittent clashes going on between Israelis and Palestinians but I, I would say for the most part the ceasefire is, holding right but it, it won't it won't last forever again these kind of things happen fairly often right definitely not something we haven't seen before especially not um yeah just not something we haven't seen before right fairly common. yeah like yeah peace isn't going to be kept in that region for long even if there is a ceasefire it's not going to 
it's not gonna last forever. Mm -hmm. And so um, I guess we'll get into sort of how this whole thing started. So, and again, we already said it, but I, I think we should reiterate this. A lot of people, including me, I thought this before too, and I know you said you did as well. A lot of people mm -hmm. think that this is just this conflict that had no real cause, right? It's just this ethnic and religious conflict that has gone back for thousands of years since biblical times. It's never going to end. No real cause. It kind of just happened. It kind of is just there, right? The Israelis and the Palestinians have just always hated each other. And that's really not the case. This conflict is really, um, I guess, technically, you could say gone on for about the past 140, 150 years. Um, that's when sort of this modern Zionist movement really started moving into what was in Palestine. But the, the actual tensions and the fighting itself really started right after World War One. I, I, I want to say 1920, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But to start off, um, obviously, the Jews lived in what was then Israel a long time ago, biblical times, right? Mm -hmm. And around the time that Jesus was born and killed, right, or if you believe or, in Jesus, yeah, right? to, most, most people acknowledge that he was a historical figure. They just disagree on, you know, what exactly he is, right? Mm -hmm. But around the time that Jesus was born and died, Palestine, or Israel, I'm sorry, we're going to be mixing up these two places a lot. Just know that Palestine and Israel is really the same uh, Pretty much mass the same of, chunk of land. land. Yeah, just yeah. called something different. But, you know, back then Israel was controlled by the Roman Empire, right? And at some point after Jesus died, um, I can't remember the exact year, right? And it's completely unrelated to Jesus. I'm just trying to give a rough time frame. At some point after he died, the Jews in Israel rose up against the Romans, and they were just completely crushed, right? The rebellion was completely crushed and really ended in Jerusalem, where the Romans just completely destroyed Jerusalem and finished off this, uh, this Jewish rebellion, I guess you could say. And most Jews in the area fled to Europe and some to the rest of the Middle East, right? There was Jews in uh, like Yemen, um, sort of what is now modern day Iraq, right? Some in the Middle East, but the vast majority of them went to Europe. There was still some Jews in Israel, but not many. No. I mean, up until the late 1800s, when you see this modern Zionist movement really start to take hold, the population of now Palestine was really only about 2% Jewish. And there could be some margin of error within that, but say the margin of error is, is pretty high. Let's say that's off by a magnitude of three. You're still only talking about 6% of Palestine being Jewish and the rest of it being Arab Muslim. Mm -hmm. And so going back to the Jews most of them fleeing to Europe, um, 
anti-Semitism was rampant in Europe for hundreds of years and really honestly still is. I'm personally surprised by how much anti-Semitism there still is in Europe. And a lot of people Today, sort really? of think, yeah, yeah, it's, um, I wasn't aware of that. Why well, I, yeah, I wasn't either. It's um, interesting. It's interesting to see though. And a lot of people think that anti-Semitism really stemmed from Hitler and the Nazis, right? They sort of came with all these, came up with all these stereotypes for Jews um, and just this fervorish anti-Semitism in Europe. And, and that's really not the case either. Obviously the Nazis perpetuated it, right? And they grabbed a hold of all these stereotypes in the anti-Semitism that was in Europe, but they didn't create these notions by any means. This was very, very popular in Europe for hundreds of years, um, if not thousands of years from when the Jews, you know, first migrated into Europe in mass. And there was, and I think you heard of it uh, when you listened to the podcast, but there's these things called pogroms in Europe. And really what a pogrom is, is a racial, it's a racial riot, but it's really either sanctioned or enabled by the government, right? You're talking about yeah. these mobs of um, non-Jewish Europeans, and this thing happened in Eastern Europe a lot, right? This is very common in the Russian Empire. These mobs of non-Jewish Europeans going out into Jewish neighborhoods and, I mean, attacking Jews, burning down their homes, their businesses, killing the men, killing the women, killing the children, doing uh, awful things to women and children. I'm sure you can probably guess, but I don't, I don't think I need to say it, but this is very common in Europe. And the Zionist, modern Zionist movement really saw these pogroms as a reason to so come get up out of with, there. yeah, flee, come up with a Jewish homeland, a sovereign, officially Jewish state, right? And this is something that the Jews have always really talked about. They've passed down this idea for generations, like we will return to the Holy Land, right? We've been in exile for however so long, but one day we will return to the Holy Land. And that's something that was passed down for, for generations. And the modern Zionist movement really takes hold of that idea. And this is something that we see beginning in the late 1800s, right? These sort of Jew rich Jewish intellectuals coming together, forming this uh, Zionist movement and trying to figure out how to start a, an officially Jewish state, preferably in the Holy Land, what is now Palestine. And what is also Palestine at this time is controlled by the Ottoman Empire, right? That plays a big part into the story too. And one of the huge boosts for the Zionist movement is something called the Dreyfus Affair. And I'm, I can't remember if uh, the host, Daryl Cooper, I can't remember if he talked about this in the first episode or the sep second. I, I really can't remember because I've all. The, the name sounds familiar. However, after um, you got done talking about the pogroms and uh, Jews wanted to move back to Jerusalem, uh, that's kind of where I got, that's where it gets very fuzzy because it throws a lot of information at you. Then mm -hmm. that's where it gets into like, you know, early 1900s and then the start of World War One and World War II. Uh, 
I'm the name sounds familiar. I can't be 100% certain. Okay. Yeah. And it, and it is very detailed. It's a lot of information to go over in a podcast. And like, I just listened to it for the second time. Right. And I, I had to take notes because if I didn't, there's definitely stuff I would forget. There's a lot of important information that you could easily forget just because there's so much of it, but there was this, uh, this, I don't know if you could call it a scandal event, whatever you want to call it, something called the Dreyfus Affair in France in the 1800s. And it's named after Captain Alfred Dreyfus, who oh, was yeah, this was Jewish officer, Jewish French officer in the French army. And for whatever reason, he was framed for treason, right? He was charged with treason and convicted, and he was sent off to this penal colony, you know, forced hard labor. And it was pretty clear that he didn't do it, but he was a scapegoat for this treasonous event because he was Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And it was pretty clear after all this evidence came out that he was framed that the people that convicted him really only did so because he was Jewish. And that was the reason for them not clearing his name right so and this was a big thing in France you had so much so that people took sides right you had people that were I guess pro-Dreyfus like hey we know this guy is innocent we support him and you had guys that were anti-Dreyfus like hey this bastard's guilty keep him in a penal colony right and this thing got so bad that it got all the way up to the French government and the French government actually threw out his conviction well, the army didn't care for that too much because they looked, made him look stupid, right? Hey, you guys fucked up, put all this effort into charging this guy, convicting him for treason, and here all this evidence is that he didn't do it, and you guys aren't doing anything about it. You guys fucked up. I made the didn't army they just look try stupid. and then they just try and convict him again. Then They're exactly, like, okay, and that's well, that's yeah. exactly what they did. Yeah, the army said, okay, well, we're just going to do the whole thing over again. And thank God that thing can't happen to us in America, right? It's called double jeopardy. Thank God. (laughs) That's that's just a separate side note. But that's what the army did to this guy. And Jews, Jews in Europe really saw this as all the more reason to establish a Jewish state in the historical Jewish homeland, right? Hey, this is how bad anti-Semitism is in Europe. It's not going to go away. This is this is what we face on a daily basis, right? And there's no reason to believe that it's going to change. And yeah. yeah I, was, I was just going to say, um, like from the pogroms that were going on in Eastern Europe, mainly Russia, mm-hmm. that caused the mass emigration of Jews to move to other parts of Europe, like uh, like France, like Britain, like Germany. But mm-hmm. then, so things were going good. Things were going good for them historically. You know, they got out of Russia. They got, there were no pogroms happening, at least I've heard up on in France or Britain. But then when that Dreyfus uh, scandal happened, that just made a lot of Jews at the time think like, you know, they thought things were getting better for them in that part of Europe. They they were getting accustomed to being, you know, a a French Jew and all that. But then when the scandal came, that really made them see like, you know, things in Europe aren't getting any better. And that gave them even more of a push to want to just go back to their homeland. These things were going good. But if it wasn't for that case, who knows, maybe they never would have made uh, the mass immigration to Jerusalem. And that's one point I just wanted to state. 
Yeah, no, and that and that's a that's a great point. And also that's why during this time frame we saw a lot of Jews moving to America, Eastern European Jews, right? Because they wanted to get out of Europe. Hey, we'll come to America, right? Brand new land, brand new start. But that's that's just a, a side note. And so there's a man that sees what's going on with the Dreyfus affair, and it really motivates him to get deeply involved in this Zionist movement. His name is Theodore Herzl, right? He is, uh, I believe he was a journalist um, in Eastern Europe. I can't remember which specific country he was born in. It may have been Poland. It may have been Russia. I, I honestly can't remember, but he is considered the father of modern Zionism. And it's interesting because he is a secular Jew, right? So he's not so much motivated by the religious aspect of it. He's motivated by the ethnic aspect of Judaism and wanting a separate country in the homeland for Jews. And so he writes this pamphlet on Zionism and details, you know, everything that he thinks the Jews, the Zionists should do. Um, very detailed pamphlet. I haven't gotten to read it, unfortunately. I, I would like to, though. But in this pamphlet, the reason I bring this up is because he talks about the area of Palestine, right, Jews settling there, and he almost ignores, and this is a common theme you see, especially in the early Zionist movement among the leaders, almost ignores the existence of Palestinians in Palestine. He makes a brief yeah. mention of them as the natives, but really doesn't talk about them much at all. He basically makes it seem like, hey, this is empty land just waiting to be occupied. Let's go occupy it. Never, never mind the people that live there, right? They're, they're not an issue. We'll figure out what to do with them later. But here's this open land. Let's go live there. And again, that's a common theme for for colonialism it's never true it's like yeah. oh let's take this land and then think about the indigenous people later or mm -hmm. what to do with them yeah mm -hmm. that's true and now that you mentioned colonial colonialism i will say that a lot of people whether you think they're right or wrong i'll, I'll leave that determination mm -hmm. to you but I, I think a lot of people see the modern state of israel as a colonialist entity, right? They see, they see these European Jews, because again, there was some Arab Jews living in Palestine, but not many of them at all, 2% of the population, they see these European Jews coming in and taking their land. So they see it as a colonial adventure, if you will, right? And that's still how some people see it today. Again, whether you think that's right or wrong, I'll leave that determination up to you. But I, I'm just saying that's how some people see it right, whether they're right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And when this modern Zionist movement gets started, you see the creation of something called the Jewish National Fund. And it's basically a charity where people, you know, give money to, and it's to be used for buying land in Palestine. So the early strategy of the Zionists was to buy up land, buy this land from Palestinians and keep it right didn't didn't matter you know if it was a empty desert didn't matter if it was a farm what as long as you get the land it's ours now right can't sell it back to the palestinians if you want palestinians can work the land 
or maybe they could pay rent to you, but you you own the land, right? Once this land is bought by Jews, that's it. It cannot be owned by Palestinians again. And this is how we're going to take Palestine and make it ours, right? That was an early strategy. And you see, I mean, Jews all over the world were donating into this from, you know, uh, rich families like the Rothschilds um, mm. and just ordinary Jewish families, like middle-class Jewish families who just, hey, you know, we'll, we'll give a, a couple bucks here and there to the Jewish National Fund and here you go, right? This is our fund for buying up land in Palestine. And so that is what early Zionists relied on, right, as this money coming in from the National Fund to buy up this land. And so Jews in the late 1800s are starting to move from Europe to Israel. Not many, but that's really when you start to see a lot of this immigration. And it's kind of picking up little by little. You know, Zionist leaders are encouraging people to move into this land and you know, you get through the early 1900s and again, little by little immigration. And then World War I happens, right? You see the allies, at least at the start of the war, France, Russia, and the UK go up against Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But a little bit after the war starts, the Ottoman Empire gets into the fold and allies themselves with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Uh, Austria and again, the Ottoman Empire controlled the land of Palestine at this time, right? So the Zionist leaders see this as a great opportunity, right? Britain declares war on the Ottoman Empire. They want to take over this territory. The Zionist leaders see this as a great opportunity to work with the British. Hey, we'll work with you guys if you promise to help us set up an independent Jewish state in Palestine after the Ottoman Empire is defeated at the war's mm. end, right? There's something called the Balfour Declaration, and that's basically what this agreement was, right? Hey, you guys help us defeat the Ottoman Empire, we'll give you your land. And when I say help us defeat the Ottoman Empire, it's interesting. There's this notion, and it's still pretty common today, unfortunately, but there's this notion that Jews around the world are really just this one massive unitary thinking body, right? Almost like the Illuminati, pretty much, right? They have tons of money, they control the world's banks, um, and they all make decisions in unison, right? And so <laughs> British officials went to this prominent Zionist, uh, God, I can't remember his name. His name was Heim White Weizmann, right? That was his okay. name. And he would later become uh, the major leader in the Zionist movement, or at least one of them. But Heim Weizmann is living in Britain at this time. He just got his British citizenship and British officials come to them or come to him and say, hey, if you get the forces of, quote, international Jewry, I'm just saying what they called it at the time, obviously mm -hmm. a ridiculous assertion, but that's what that's how they saw it. Um, if you get the forces of international Jewry on our side, right, that will help us win the war. And if you help us win the war, we will give you Palestine. You'll have the right to a separate Jewish nation inside Palestine. And some of these British officials, it's ridiculous. They, going along with all these stereotypes of the Jews controlling the banks and all these 
just this international cabal, right? A lot of these British officials see international Jewry as the key to who wins the war. So if the Germans, the Ottomans, and the Austro-Hungarians have the forces of international Jewry on their side, they'll win the war. If we have them on our side, we'll win the war. And that was the, motiva the motivation, excuse me, for declaring this Balfour Declamation. Declaration. Sorry, I can't speak. And it's it's ridiculous. But at the same time, you see Britain making two other sets of promises to other parties. They make they promises. Yeah, and they <laughs> the the reasoning, it's believed the reasoning for do this is hey, we're we're getting our we're getting our asses kicked, right? We can't hold off against the Germans. Austro-Hungarians, and now the Ottoman Empire, we need to win this war. So we'll make whatever promise we can to whoever we need to make it to, to get help to win this war. So they made a promise to the French. It's called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And that's basically an agreement to carve up the Middle East, or former Ottoman territories after the empire's defeat. Hey, France, you'll get this territory. We'll get this territory, right? That's another set of promises they made. And it's in conflict with the Balfour Declaration because some of the areas that the Jews, the Zionist movement, excuse me, wanted was within the area that France wanted, the Ottoman territories that France wanted after the end of the First World War. So there's already that conflict. And they make a third promise, and I can't remember the official name of it, if there even was an official name, but they made a promise to the Arabs that, hey, if you guys revolt against the Ottoman Empire, help us defeat them in the war, we will give you an independent Arab state. All this former Ottoman territory, you guys could have it to do with whatever you want to it. Independent Arab state, the first independent Arab state in hundreds of years the first Arab nation state ever in history. You guys could have it, just take a gun, point it at an Ottoman, start shooting. And as long as we win, you guys could have this territory. So yep. three sets of conflicting promises and there's no possible way that they're going to keep all of them. And there's really no indication that they're going to keep any of them, right? Mm -hmm. And to also to, to step in on that, I remember, <clears throat> You said that there, you don't believe that there was a name for that uh, agreement. I, I don't think there was either. I don't remember them. I don't remember their one being named or even documented. And the explanation for that was when the British went to the Arab states, it was mainly by they went by word of mouth. It's not like mm -hmm. Western cultures where you have it documented. You know, you have a witness there to make sure you get it in writing. Like, OK, if we do X, Y and Z, we're going to get this, that and the other in return. It was all by word of mouth. So I was like a very, a very sneaky and good way for British to just do it, you know, underneath the radar. So nobody else could even know about this. And of course they didn't come true. They didn't come through on it once they won. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's a good point. I um, mean, the host brings this up as well, you know, back, back then there were no, no Arab nation states, right? There was no strong institutions like we have here on the West, right, in, in, the, in Britain, in this case. Um, everything was word of mouth. Your word was, your, was bond, right? That meant everything. If you gave your word to something, it was going to happen. But, of course, Britain being completely different culturally, mm. that wasn't the case. 
nothing, nothing was signed, nothing was in writing. Therefore, it basically didn't, it wasn't valid as far as they were concerned, right? So that's the issue with these two conflicting cultures is the Arabs um, take the British word as bond and the British say, ah, nothing's in writing. So we don't really have to follow through on it. And that's obviously a big issue, but you get to the end of World War One. Obviously, the Ottoman Empire has been defeated. All this Arab land in the Middle East now is just kind of there. And Britain kind of tries to follow through on all three agreements, but obviously there's no way they could wasn't it just the Sykes agreement, the one with the French that was mainly took priority with Exactly. Yeah. 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 So they, I mean, they didn't want to piss off the French, right? And obviously the mm. French, um, the French were pissed off already because they took the brunt of World War One, right? I mean, the war was fought on their territory for the entire, the entire war, right? Millions of French dead, um, they lost all these resources, all these lives, uh, all this money, and they want something in return for it, right? So the Sykes-Picot agreement really was the priority as far as the British were concerned. They kind of tried to compromise on all three agreements, but there was no possible way, right? Sykes-Picot took precedence. So France got all the territory that was previously agreed to, right? Britain got all the territory that they previously agreed to, Part of that territory that France got was, of course, part of the territory that the Zionists wanted for their independent Jewish state. And that's also the territory that these Arabs were promised for their independent nation state, right? Uh, specifically Syria. They were promised all this territory in Syria and the French just come in and take it. There's this Arab king by the name of Faisal Right. He's part of this, uh, the Hashemite clan and um, his descendants actually still rule. Jordan, uh, King Abdullah II is actually Faisal I. It's, uh, I don't know if it's great grandson. I'm not sure exactly what the relationship is, but it's, it's the same family, right? So this family goes all the way back then. But he was promised all this territory, right? Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, all this territory, and the French come in and take Syria specifically. And I think they have more territories than that. I believe they also took Lebanon as well, but I'm just talking about Syria right now. And the Arabs that align themselves with King Faisal were pretty pissed off about it. And to be fair, Faisal was too. He just wasn't sure what he could do about it. Well, he had to do something. He couldn't just let the French and the British roll over him, right? His people were pretty pissed and they were still loyal to him, but they're saying, what the fuck? Why aren't you doing anything about this, right? So he declares himself the king of Syria and declares that Syria is independent territory. The French do not control it. And that doesn't last long at all. The French end up bringing their army in. Faisal doesn't even put up a fight. I mean, basically surrenders. And he was the only military force in that area that could possibly withstand the French. And I don't even believe he could have. But if anyone could have, it would have been him. But they didn't even put up a fight, right? He surrenders the territory as soon as they come in. A few of his people sort of take to the hills and start this guerrilla campaign. But that 
really doesn't last long at all before they get crushed. But here you have European colonial empires coming into Arab land and taking it and I mean, completely dominating over them. And the Arabs are thinking, wait, we just helped you defeat this empire that was kicking your guys' ass, that had a hold over us. But to be honest, it really wasn't that bad. They were still a Muslim empire, right? Don't get me wrong. It was not the ideal situation, but it was a lot better than these Christian European empires coming in and taking over. We just helped you guys defeat this when really the situation wasn't that bad. And now you're completely screwing us over. So that obviously pisses off a lot of Arabs all over the region. And you still have the Zionists moving in. So Britain obviously can't follow through all the way on their promise to give the Zionists their independent state, the Balfour Declaration. But what they do is they set up this military administration and sort of facilitate things between the Jews that are now in the area and the Arabs, right? Jews, the European Jews that just moved in. And I should say mm -hmm. there was really no conflict between the Jewish Arabs that had been there since biblical times, right? However few they were and the Muslim Arabs, there was no conflict, right? They really got along perfectly for the most part is really nothing nothing noteworthy at all. But then these European Jews start coming in, right? And at first there's really no sort of conflict. The Muslims are pretty accepting of them, but then they start to see what's going on. These guys are buying up all of our land. They refuse to give it back to us, right? They're trying to change street signs, put them in Hebrew. They're trying to change all of our institutions. Something is going on and we don't like it. And so the British helped facilitate this military administration or create this military administration to help facilitate things between the Muslims and the Jews in the area. And there's this slow, slow tension building, but nothing too crazy yet. But going back to the French in Syria, obviously the Arabs are still pretty pissed off about France coming in and taking over land that was promised to them. And so we get into this incident called the Battle of Tel Hai. That's what I'm getting at. There is these Arab militias in this settlement called Tel Hai. I'm not sure where exactly in Palestine it is, right? Maybe, maybe along the Syrian border, I'm not sure, but there's this Arab militia going around looking for French soldiers. And somehow they had some indication I don't even know if I want to say indication. They had a suspicion that there was French soldiers hiding out in this settlement Tel Hai. I'm not sure why they thought that. Maybe they had a decent amount of intel. Maybe they just had a suspicion. Not sure why, but whatever. They thought that French might be hiding in this area. So the Arab militias go into this Jewish settlement, Tel Hai, and start to look for French soldiers. They're getting I don't even know if some resistance, I guess you could say, but it's nothing crazy. I mean, they're like arguing with the Jewish settlers, right? Nobody's fighting yet or anything. And it's not clear how an initial firefight breaks out between this militia and the Jewish settlers, but it does. One of the theories is that a 
Arab militiaman goes into this woman's house to look for French soldiers. She sees him armed, right? Armed guy breaking into her house. What's the first thing you do? You pick up a gun and you start shooting. So that's a theory, right? She was scared. This guy breaks into her house. She picks up a gun, starts shooting at him. And then this firefight breaks out, right? Oh, what the hell? It, both sides, it's really unclear how this started again. And both sides have their own narrative. And from their point of view, both those narratives can be completely valid, right? And uh, Daryl talks about this when he goes into his podcast. Both sides can tell their own part of the story. And they could be telling the truth from their perspective, right? It, nobody really knows how this happened. But this initial firefight breaks out between these settlers and the Arab militia. Um, you know, a few people die, a few people are wounded on both sides. And then this Arab militia leader realizes that this whole thing is an understanding, right? This firefight did not need to happen. There's no reason for this. And so they come up, they come to a ceasefire agreement. Hey, this didn't need to happen. This is a complete mistake. We'll leave, right? Stop shooting at us and we'll leave, this yeah. Arab militia leader said. And so the militia start to withdraw. And it's not clear how this second firefight breaks out, <laughs> but yes. it does. One of the theories is that an unknown Jewish settler, well, an unknown Jewish settler did fire shot. Nobody's really clear if he deliberately meant to shoot at one of the Arabs as they were withdrawing. They're not sure if he just didn't get the ceasefire memo, if maybe he was pissed and still you know, wanted to take revenge or something like that. Maybe it was a negligent discharge. Nobody's really sure, right? But this fight, the shot gets fired. The Arab militias withdraw a little bit to regroup with more militias and they counterattack the settlement. And in the end, um, probably about six people died. Dozens are wounded on both sides. And that is really the first the first skirmish in the Arab or Palestinian Israeli conflict that really is considered wow. the first fight. It's called the battle of Tel high. It's kind of a little bit of an exaggeration to call it a battle, right? More, I would call it the firefight of Tel high, if anything, yeah. but whatever that's, that's officially what it's called. The battle of Tel high, the first battle in this Palestinian Israeli conflict. I wonder what year that was in because oh, it was after world war one right so it yes be... I, I believe this is in 1920 actually let me look that up because yeah. that's really when you start to see like the, the conflict come between... to all yeah so it was march yeah. 1st 1920 right battle of tel high not long after world war one wow obviously that pisses off a ton of people on both sides tensions are now very high between the Jews and the Muslim Palestinians. See that, that right there. That's that's eye opening to me because this is I haven't gotten this far in the podcast yet. So I'm just like I'm literally just here. I'm trying to take in as much as you're saying now, but just um, with that original notion that we spoke of in the beginning in the beginning of this episode, where you think, oh, this has been going on for centuries. This has been going on for millennia, and then you just said right now. The Battle of Tel Hai, 1920. It's like, wow, it's only been 
I mean, 100 years is still a long time or 101 years is still a long time, but it's nowhere near as long as a millennia like this feud has been going on. So that right there, that's eye opening. And that that's it's amazing from my eye, from my view. It's amazing just to learn this, how what I originally thought just get rid of this is actually what happened and how it started. That yeah, was, thank you for enlightening me. Yeah, of course. And all this information has completely changed my perspective. I completely. Right. And again, when Jews start first moving into this territory in the late 1800s, there's really no tension that the Arabs were pretty welcome, welcoming of them, you know? Yeah. And tension slowly starts to build when the Arabs sort of realize what's going on. Right. Mm. It slowly starts to build, but it's really nothing too bad. My voice is cracked pretty bad. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> I had to mention it. Um, yeah, the tensions aren't too bad until you get to the Battle of Tel High. Now they're at an all-time high, and they do not come back from there. And so you fast forward to, let me check the date on this. It's also in 1920. This is, okay, so April 1920. So actually only a month, a month after the Battle of okay. Tel High. There is this, and I'm not sure the dynamics of this festival, right? I just know what it's called, but it's called Nebi Musa. And it's in what is now considered the West Bank, right? It's on the border of Jordan. And there's this big festival. It's like an annual thing, right? But there is a, a Christian festival. Okay, so it's actually Good Friday. So Good Friday and this Nebi Musa festival align, right? And by the way, at this time, there are Arab Christians living in Palestine as well. It, not nearly as much as there are Muslims, but more than there are Jews, right? A, a little bit. And Christians from all over the world come to this same area where the Nebi Musa festival is to celebrate Good Friday, right? So you have this Muslim festival in Nebi Musa, Christian celebration Good Friday happening at the same place. And there's always a little bit of tension again. Nothing too crazy, though. Um, the Ottoman Empire really is mindful of it and kind of keeps things under wraps. I mean, they have like thousands of troops on standby in case anything happens. They have artillery batteries like pointed at these festivals to really deter anything from happening. So there's a little bit of tension, but it's nothing too crazy. But in 1920, April 1920, this is right after the Battle of the Tel, at Tel High. And Along with the Arab Muslims, the Arab Christians see what's happening as well. And they start to sort of ally themselves with the Arab Muslims. And religion at this point really doesn't play that big of a role in this conflict, right? Yeah, it doesn't the seem Arab it. Muslims didn't have an issue with the European Jews because they were Jewish. They had an issue with them not even necessarily because they were European. They had an issue with them because they're coming in, buying all this land and are pretty clear about what they want to do with it, right? Hey, we want our own independent state, no Arabs allowed. That's what we want. They're pretty clear about that. So it's not even necessarily anything to do with religion, right? And that's why you see Arab Muslims and Arab Christians uh, sort of on the same page, I guess you could say, right? Nebi Musa comes around April 4th and 
there is a lot of tension because now you have the Christians and the Muslims on one side and you have the Jews on another. And there's this tension between crowds. Nothing is really going on at this point, right? But every, everyone is on edge, right? Some, some people are armed on both sides, but that's just sort of precautionary. And this is a common theme. It's also unclear why exactly <laughs> this happened. It, it's un, unclear what happened, I should say. But someone in the Arab crowd says the Jews are attacking us. And it's not clear if Arabs actually were being attacked by Jews or if someone just said this to let all hell Spark break something. loose. But yeah. that's exactly what happens. All hell breaks loose. This Arab, massive Arab mob, I just, it's, some people compare it to a pogrom. It isn't necessarily a pogrom because it was not enabled by the British administration by any means. Some prominent Zionists try to make that argument, but it's really just to piss off the British. They know in reality, it's not necessarily a pogrom, but it's it's a race riot, essentially, right? Yeah. Uh, a dozens of Jews are killed. I'm actually trying to find the exact casualty numbers, but, but a ton of Jews were killed and Arabs were killed too as well, but this is a turning point for the conflict. Mm -hmm. This is right after the Battle of Tel Hai, and from the Arabs' point of view, the Jews started this race riot at Nebi Musa. It's not clear if that's true or not, again, but from their mm -hmm. point of view, that's what happened, and this is the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> I hate yeah. to be that kind of say, but geez. And so there's there's a lot, a lot more that we could get into. This is really all that I took notes up into. Well, I, I have a few notes after this, but I mean, this is really the beginning of the conflict. Um, there is this British government commission that is sent to Palestine to figure out what exactly happened and what they come back with is sure the Arabs perpetuated this violence against the Jews but the root cause of it is all these actions taken by the Zionists to form their own nation and completely exclude the Muslim Palestinians. And the Zionists didn't care for that, uh, the determination oh, from that not. commission too much. And there were a lot of prominent Zionists, um, I mean, lobbying all Western governments, right? Lobbying our government, but more relevant to this situation, lobbying, lobbying excuse me, the British government. So the prominent Zionists see this determination from the commission and they have it swept under the rug. It does not become public information, not at all, at least not for a long time, um, not when it can actually do something, right? Change mm -hmm. people's opinions. And at some point soon after the Nebi Musa riots, I'm not sure the exact date, but Britain replaces this military administration that had been running Palestine with a civilian administration, right? Sort of um, akin to what we see 
with our government doing after Saddam Hussein's government is toppled, obviously completely different situations. I'm just trying to draw parallels between this civilian administration and sort of like something we saw in Iraq, right, with mm -hmm. our government. Now, this administration is headed by a British man by the name of Herbert Samuel. Herbert Samuel is Jewish, and he is a prominent and dedicated Zionist, right? He, see, he sees himself as a British Jew, right? So he's British first. His loyalty is to the crown before anything, but he's also Jewish. He's very proud of that fact. He's a very prominent Zionist, and he's very dedicated to the idea of Zionism. There are a lot of different sects, I guess you could say, of Zionism at this point, right? You had Zionists, in, particularly in Palestine, believed, hey, we're going to take this land from the Palestinians and create our own nation, whereas you had prominent Zionists in Europe, not all of them, but some of them, including Herbert Samuel, thinking, well, we'll just have Jews immigrate to this land, and then we'll come up with a representative government, and we'll include the Christians and the Muslims, and it'll, it'll all be good, right? We'll sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, win their hearts and minds. Hmm. And there was that huge disconnect between the Zionists, that thought for purposes of this podcast, I'll refer to it as the hearts and minds sort of route and the more radical Zionists that believe we are going to take this land one way or another. There was huge, huge difference between the two. And Herbert Samuel is the former, right? So obviously a lot of Arabs are pissed off that now this Zionist is basically has control over their lives, right? He's heading the government that controls them. But the Zionists in Palestine are pissed because this guy, they see him as a coward, pretty much. He's not willing to do what has to be done in their eyes. And so a common theme you see all the way up until 1948 when Israel becomes an independent Jewish nation you see Britain stuck in the middle between these Arabs that are pissed off at them and these Jews that are pissed off at them, but the Arabs and the Jews are pissed off at each other. And it's this weird triangle, I guess, that Britain is caught up in the middle of, and they are up until 1948. So so that's the time frame where, oh no, we're not up until 1948. We're still in the time frame of uh, around like the 1920s, early 1920s. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jeez, that's, that's a lot to take in. Uh, where you're at now, uh, with the history of this conflict, what podcast, what episode would you say you're at now? So I, I believe I just started episode, um, episode four. So it's, okay. it's it's episode four, but it's part three of the series. So episode okay. three um, kind of takes some time to, it's not an official part of the series. It's kind of off on the side, but it takes time to talk about sort of the dynamics of the Middle, the Middle East during Ottoman rule, um, how the institutions worked or really lack of institutions. Um, mm like we talked about earlier, how, you know, your word 
was your bond, how that played a prominent role in decision-making and agreements. Um, and it's, it's a very good one. I, I encourage uh, anyone to listen to it. Um, it really provides a lot of context into the way of thinking of the Arabs. It is very interesting, but I'm, I'm on episode four, which is part three officially of the series. Okay, did you, um, how, much, how much time do you have left for today? Because I know for myself, I have about 20 minutes left. And uh, definitely, I feel like I'm at a loss right now because I really can't contribute much to conversation because mm-hmm. I haven't listened as much. Um, I enjoy listening to you, but uh, I, I know I would like to listen to it and be able to contribute some more. But if you'd want to continue talking for the remaining time that I have, uh, please keep on going. I think... Um... I think that's probably where we should stop today. I think when we come back and do another episode, um, after you've listened to the podcast a little more, we could come back and, and sort of rehash these things a little bit. And if you have any questions or comments on what we talked about, um, that would be a good time to give those. And then that would give both of us time to go further into the series. And I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll take notes. Um, oh, yeah. To, kind of generally guide what we're going to talk about. I, I could kind of go into the rest of the history until 1948 now, but I would be more so rambling on. I mean, even more so than I am now. Um, I think it would be better for me to have at least a broad set of notes. And of course, to give you time to listen to the podcast as well, because I've already listened to it once. I just, I listened to the whole thing um, probably about three weeks ago is when I started and uh, finished it, but there's just so information, man, you have to listen to it at least, well, definitely more than a couple times, right? I'm sure there's stuff I'm missing. I'm getting really the big chunks of it. Very detailed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you, even when I'm going to the gym now, that's, that's what I'm listening to. Like, I like it. Yeah. It's, Very it's good. really good. Uh, would you, would you uh, want to make this a weekly thing? Do you have a schedule to work out? Um, um, if if we could do weekly, that would be great. Um, you know, we could uh, kind of strategize um, our schedules and see how we want to do this. But you know, if we could do this weekly, yeah, I think that would be great. Especially like while we're both on summer, right? It's it'll be more exactly. difficult for both of us when mm-hmm. we're back in school. So I think the time that we have now to knock these out is pretty good. And depending on what we talk about, we could even maybe release these over time. So there's not that much of a gap between releases, if, if that makes any sense. So we could record now over the summer and depending on what we talk about, as long as it's Ooh. still kind of relevant to that time frame, we could release it later. Oh, absolutely. I, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, that would be good too, because like that goes to show with, it was like what, an over a year gap with our last one. So yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can get behind that. Um, so uh, just to get a timeline of things, would you say by the next podcast that we do, we uh, could, s- s- I don't want to say sum up because there's a lot to sum up, but we could uh, talk about the Israel versus Palestine conflict again, and that would take up another full podcast. And then after that, we go on to different subjects and then we could pick and choose which ones we uh, do from there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Okay. Cool. Then I'm gonna have to get a list of things to do. Yeah, yeah dude. Honestly, I I've enjoyed talking to you. This has been uh, it's it's just been nice, and it's really yeah. nice too seeing how much uh, how much you're paying attention to this as well, and just how much you're taking. And I could tell, um, like you being a poli sci major, just how interesting this is to you. Because I like I've listened to the first episode and like a bit of the second one there's no way I've taken in as much information as you have. Like, yeah, it, it just clicks with you and it impresses me to see that. And uh, like, you know, just that's awesome for you because my memory is not that good. So cheers to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't know why it, I don't know why it interests me so much. It just does. I'm not sure why, but you know, I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah, and if you find any more podcasts uh, that you find interesting, throw them my way. This one, like, I, I don't know when I'm going to listen to all 19 of them, but mm -hmm. I absolutely plan to. Like, by the end of the summer, I'd like to catch up with this guy. Okay, well, let me let me know, because um, I haven't, I want to, but I haven't yet listened past the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But uh, when we get past that, or when you get past that, let me know, and I'll, I'll sort of listen to the next ones along with you. All right, dude. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's uh, that's about all I got today. I know you wanted to go to the gym. I'm going to make myself some food before I go to work, but it was really good talking to you. And I'm, I'll uh, I'll text you um, and we'll figure out when we want to do the next one for sure. All right. Yeah, dude. Sounds good. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you and uh, hit me up on Xbox for whenever you got time. Yeah, yeah, I will now that uh, now that we're on summer for sure. Yes, sir. All right, man. Hey, you take it easy. All right, you too.